don't know. I mean, I don't think I have anything to contribute to the conversation. Like anything new. No, I mean, it's just, it's just, been, it's been talked to death and I'm not an expert. At, yes. Yeah, I know. I, I know it's part, it's part of the, yeah. Yep. No, it's part of the, it's part of the podcast. I mean, that's what we agreed to do, but I mean, come on. It's, it's Orson Well. Yeah, I know. I know. Fine. Yeah, I'll talk to you later. Okay, bye. Hey, everyone, you just caught me on the phone with my lawyer discussing why I have to talk about the lady from Shanghai from 1947. Uh, it's basically, they told me uh, it's my duty and I, I'm required to discuss a movie on this list, even if I don't feel like I have anything to contribute to the, to the conversation. But it's an Orson Welles movie, and I'm not an Orson Welles expert. And you basically have to have like three decades worth of film theory and film criticism under your belt in order to even intelligently discuss an Orson Welles movie because the discussion surrounding an Orson Welles movie is basically like an Orson Welles movie. It's fascinating. It doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of contradictory points of view coming into play. And at the end of it, you're like, well, that was remarkable, but I have no idea what I just witnessed. So the lady from Shanghai in 1947 or 48, I mean, right off the bat, we have like conflicting reports on when this movie was actually released because it was released in Europe first and released in America later on. The studio sat on it because they were afraid that it was going to destroy the career of Rita Hayworth. But instead, it made the career of Rita Hayworth even more interesting, which is just like the rest of the lady from Shanghai. It's an Orson Welles movie, which means the version you get to watch isn't the version that Orson Welles made because he throws up his hands after he edits his movies and it's like, you know what? I'm done with this. You take it, run with it, do whatever you want with it. I completely disown this product. It's The Lady from Shanghai, 1947 by Orson Welles, starring Orson Welles, produced by Orson Welles, and ostensibly written by Orson Welles, starring his wife, Rita Hayworth, with whom he was on the outs at the time. They did the movie together, hoping to rekindle their romance, but it actually kind of destroyed what was left of their relationship. They were divorced before the movie even dropped. Also starring Everett Sloan, who didn't enjoy working on the movie. Uh, also starring Glenn Anders, who didn't enjoy working on the movie. And a whole bunch of other people who didn't enjoy working on the movie. Unless you go back and look at accounts from the time, and apparently people did enjoy working on the movie. Uh, Orson Welles was, was terrible to work with unless you talk to other people who say he was amazing to work with. He had no respect for actors unless you talk to other people who were like, mm, no, he loved actors. He was great working with the actors. His technique for working with actors looked like they didn't enjoy working on it, but actually they did enjoy it. Was, it's really hard to pin down what it was like to work for Orson Welles. Remember that Orson Welles was a theater director. Uh, he was a theater performer, but he didn't like performing. He didn't think he had any right to be an actor, but he was an actor. He always said like something like, uh, people were like, were you a movie star? And he was like, well, I starred in movies, so I guess I'm literally a movie star. But he didn't want to be a star. He didn't like his own performances, but he sure did a whole lot of them. The Lady from Shanghai. Uh, it's based on a novel called If I Die Before I Wake by Sherwood King. The story goes that Orson Welles was working on the play, the musical, Around the World in 80 Days. He ran out of money. He was opening soon. He needed $50,000 more, but he couldn't get his hands on $50,000. So uh, he contacted Columbia Pictures and was like, or they couldn't contacted him. I don't know. And he was like, oh, look, I'll direct a movie for you. If you wire me $50,000 in a couple of days... I'll, I'll direct a movie for you. And they were like, sure, whatever, go right ahead. They wired him the money. He finished Around the World in 80 Days, which was a bomb. He made If I Die Before I Wake into a movie called The Lady from Shanghai, which was also a bomb. 
what is this movie about? If I Die Before I Wake is, is a is a noir novel. And The Lady from Shanghai is pretty much a noir movie, but it's an Orson Welles noir movie. And one thing that gets said about Orson Welles, Peter Bogdanovich talks a lot. Peter Bog- okay, so Peter Bogdanovich is a film director, producer, writer, who became best friends with Orson Welles in the 70s and just basically hung out with Orson Welles and talked to Orson Welles and recorded all of his conversations with Orson Welles, ultimately wrote a book about Orson Welles. The way, the way Peter Bogdanovich nails down Orson Welles' style is like, People say that Orson Welles was a was a was a crazy genius or an incomprehensible genius or he wasn't a genius. He was just screwing around. What Bogdanovich says, and I kind of believe this, is that Orson Welles made movies not knowing how to make movies. He he didn't have any training in filmmaking. He just kind of taught himself, and that made him an invaluable filmmaker because he had a weird eye. He had a theater producer's eye, a theater director's eye, and. He didn't know you couldn't do certain things on set. Like he, or Wells didn't know that you, the director wasn't supposed to set up the lights. The director wasn't supposed to paint the set, which is one thing he did on this movie. The director wasn't supposed to build props. The director wasn't supposed to, you know, move the camera around. But because and because he wasn't trained in any of this, he allowed a skewed perspective onto his sets and he allowed the artists who were supposed to be doing this to see that there were weird ways you could do things. That was kind of one thing that Bogdanovich said about Wells. And also when Wells when people would be like, you you set up this genius shot or this weird angle or this low angle. Why did you do this? And Wells would always say, I didn't know any other way to do it. That was just the way I kind of saw it. It wasn't that Wells was trying to be a genius or trying to be this experimental filmmaker. It's just that this is the way he saw the shot, and so he just sort of set it up that way. He was like, I don't know, was, was that weird? Was that genius? That's just, just the way I saw the movie looking. So what is this movie about? It's about this guy, this quote-unquote, okay, so it's about Orson Welles with a terrible Irish accent. So Orson Welles tar-to-tars his way through this whole movie. He's playing an Irishman named Michael O'Hara, but he's doing this really, I have to believe that, like, it's intentionally bad. So there's this voiceover that they made Orson Welles put in afterwards because the movie made no sense. Oh, by the way, this movie makes no sense on like the first, second, third, fourth, fifth viewing. You're like, I know something just happened. But what just happened? There's no plot for like the first 75%. And then all of a sudden it is just all plot and running around. Oh, by the way, it's an Orson Welles movie. So it was originally like two and a half hours long. Then the studio cut it down to an hour and a half long and it was released and it didn't make any sense. But would it have made more sense? We don't know why none of that footage exists anymore. There's some like behind the scenes photographs. That's it. We don't know what Welles intended. He wouldn't talk about this movie for decades and he would never talk about his original cut. Like that's just, it's just lost. Like we don't know what he wanted to make out of this movie because it doesn't exist anymore. So there's this Irishman, Michael O'Hara, which is great. And he saves the life of this woman named Elsa, played by Orson Welles' wife at the time, Rita Hayworth, uh, who uh, was his... Rita Hayworth was known for her hair, and she was known for her headshots, and she was known for her cheesecake photographs. I mean, she was a good actor. Uh, She wasn't a great actor, but she was a good actor. In this movie, Orson Welles was like, cut your hair, uh, dye it blonde, we want you to look like a noir femme fatale and the studio was furious at Orson Welles because Rita Hayworth was her hair like that's they reduced her to her hair and Orson Welles was like no she needs to look a certain way because we don't want her to look like Rita Hayworth looks in this movie and I really want our marriage to work out there's so much going on behind this movie so in any case the long and short of it is he meets this woman he saves her life from a bunch of thugs in the park she's married to this world famous defense attorney named Arthur Bannister played by Everett Sloan who is fascinating in this movie uh, she hires Michael on as like their their bodyguard their 
to, to, to work a boat for their yacht. They're going yachting to San Francisco from New York. They're going to go through the Panama Canal. Uh, they end up going through, you know, they, they, they pass through Mexico. Uh, on board the yacht is this guy who's Bannister's law partner named George Grisby, played by Glenn Anders, who is acting to the hilt. Okay, this is one of the most fascinating performances I've ever seen on film. It's Glenn Anders just playing this creepy weirdo through the whole movie. You're like, are you a lawyer? Like, what is going on? How are you in court? I don't understand. Do you have any training? What are you, guy? This guy, George Grisby, tells Michael, he's like, look, I want to, okay, here's the plot, basically, in a nutshell. He's like, I want you to kill me, but don't really kill me. You're going to pretend to kill me. We're going to fake my death. You're going to sign this confession that I'm going to write for you that says that you killed me. I'm going to disappear. You're going to hand in this confession that says you killed me. They won't be able to arrest you because my body will never turn up. Again, this is like 1940s, so laws were different then. And also, it's in Mexico, or is this in San Francisco? I'm not sure yet. In any case, because there's no body, they won't be able to throw him in jail. George Grisby's going to get away with it. He's going to fake his own death. Yada, yada, yada. Shoot the gun in the air. They'll never know it was you. None of this makes any sense, by the way. None of this makes any sense. And Michael O'Hara is like, okay, sure, that sounds good. I'll give you $5,000 for faking killing me. Uh, he signs the confession. Uh, little does Michael know that George Grisby was actually planning on killing Arthur Bannister, the Rita Hayworth's husband, the, 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 the other creepy lawyer. So, But I don't understand how the confession note that for killing Grisby was supposed to cover up for killing George Bannister. I don't know. So there's this other guy named Sidney Broom, played by Ted DeCorsia, who also apparently hated working on this movie, who's a private investigator who Bannister hired to hang out around them to keep an eye on the wife, who he thinks is cheating on him, with Michael O'Hara, uh, the, with Orson Welles's like, But she is cheating on her husband with this guy. So also, Michael Bannister is like, he has like two, like, busted up legs so he walks around with canes all the time uh, which isn't actually part of the plot but it just sort of like makes him seem a little more like he's a little more like low down on the on the whole like sexual totem pole I guess is the whole point of it Michael fakes the the death of Grisby but also then the private investigator Broom gets killed by Grisby but then Broom survives or he initially survives and he warns Elsa the wife that Grisby was going to kill her husband and so Michael calls Elsa but he gets Broom and Broom is like you're getting set up by by Grisby, who then gets killed himself. Michael gets arrested for all these murders, some of these murders, I don't know. But then Bannister, the husband of Elsa, who Michael has been like screwing around with, is like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm the world famous Michael Ban like Bannister, George Bannister. I'm gonna, I'm gonna represent you in court. But also, you're sleeping around with my wife, so I hope you get the death penalty because I'll enjoy watching you suffer. There's this whole trial sequence, which is hilarious and is like watching like a Looney Tunes cartoon because everyone's like wacky characters. Uh, during a disruption in the court, Michael escapes uh, into a Chinese opera theater. But Elsa used to live in Shanghai and she has criminal connections there. And she calls her like criminal her like Chinese criminal buddies to come rescue them rescue michael but also like michael's like you have a gun in your purse you were gonna kill me and she's like no i wasn't and he runs off into a house he runs off and he gets knocked out and he wakes up in a house of mirrors or a wacky carnival sideshow spooky house and then there's this really surreal sequence where he goes down a giant slide and he ends up in a house of mirrors and then banister's there and elsa's there and they're gonna kill each other but 
what's Michael doing there? And there's all these houses with mirrors, and they shoot the mirrors, and they both end up getting killed, and Elsa's like, don't leave me, I'm dying. And Michael's like, forget about it, babe. This Or, sorry, um, oh, forget about it, babe. This is, I, oh, we're all dying. Y'all killed each other, I to Tartar. And then he leaves, and then there, he's like, well, all the people shot each other. I got that off. I was not convicted of any crimes. I can't wait to live my life and forget about Elsa. The end. And that's the whole movie, kind of. I know that it sounds a little flip the way I described it, but the movie's fascinating. Okay, this whole movie is fascinating. So it was filmed on location, partly. But then the studio was like, you're filming in Mexico. That's no good, Orson Welles. That's too expensive. We're going to film a lot of this. A lot of this we need to film on loca- like on sound stages. Location shooting is too expensive. So they built all these like expensive sound stages, which cost more than the location shooting. And then they're like, you're going over budget. But he's like, I'm, I'm sorry, but my leading lady is very sick. And then this other actor got very sick. And we keep having to, like, take time off for all these sick actors. And it's not really my fault. And also, also I'm borrowing Errol Flynn's yacht. But Errol Flynn's a drunk. And so we have to, like, kind of keep our eye on Errol Flynn, who keeps, like, driving off with the boat. And uh, it's also over, like, 150 degrees here in Mexico. So everyone keeps, like, almost dying. And then, like, someone did die, like, on set. So we have to, like, a camera person died or something. Like... And then like stuff keeps getting stolen and there's like monkeys and alligators and poisonous snakes and anytime like and you guys want cheesecake shots of Rita Hayworth swimming, so we have to keep putting her in these dangerous, like snake infested waters. So we have to hire people to scare away the snakes. This is all true, by the way, what happened. And then they get back and they're like, not enough cheesecake shots of Rita Hayworth. So he has to like film Rita Hayworth in front of green screens doing like cheesecake shots with like some weird rear projection stuff. Also, there's a whole bunch of stuff like Orson Welles loves shooting on location, so there's all these like brilliant location shots, but then they also like did like a lot of like weird green screen stuff, which is kind of an Orson Welles thing, but not an Orson Welles thing. And there's a whole fascinating scene in the aquarium, but instead of like shooting the aquarium normally, they like keyed out the the tanks with the animals and then filmed the animals separately and then blew up the 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 images. So like while he's like having this like weird scene with Rita Hayworth, there's all these like incredibly giant moray eels behind her, which are way bigger than moray eels would be, but that's just kind of part of the, the deal. There's a lot of mirror stuff going on, but uh there's like a chess game that bleeds into like the 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 trial and Orson Welles is like, I'm a little nervous that I got too, that's too close to symbolism. And Peter Bogdanovich is like, that's actual symbolism. Like, it's a chess game. And a lot of Orson Welles' like regular, like, stable of actors are there. And every single, like, minor secondary character gets something really weird and fascinating to do. And even the heavies in the movie are, like, crazy, bizarre, like, almost cartoon Bugs Bunny characters. Uh, some people, okay, so there's this whole thing with, like, film criticism, actually any kind of art criticism, where... If a if a if a if a critic doesn't understand like if a critic likes something or likes an artist but doesn't understand one of their works of art, you 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 the, the really cool thing to do is say like this was a parody or a satire or it was actually a comedy. Uh, and you kind of like let it go that way. It's like it's a way of saying like there's a lot of crazy stuff in here. I don't get it. So I guess he was making fun of this kind of stuff. As opposed to what was actually going on, which was that Orson Welles had a crazy sense of humor and loved wackiness and loved slapstick and uh, comedies and crazy. One thing about Lady from Shanghai, you watch the dialogue scenes and you're like, this is directed by a theater guy. Like, this is a play. Like, he's he directs some of this like like a stage performance. It's very, it's very large and very uh, exaggerated at times. And... 
a little cheeky. And also, you have to remember, this is not Orson Welles' movie. He didn't edit this. No one knows how he wanted to edit this movie. He wrote a bunch of notes. They did a test screening, and the audience was like, what's going on? And then he wrote a bunch of notes. He was like, okay, I know that you edited my film down. Here's what I don't like about it. One thing he hated was the score. Uh, there's a decent score in this movie, but he had scored a temp track to this you know, which is where you use like pre-existing music to sort of get the feel. And he was like, whatever you do with the music, make sure you score it kind of like my temp track. And they were like, no. And he and they scored it in a way that he describes as basically Bugs Bunny music, which is like someone falls down. They, there's like a whorump. And someone and like Rita Hayworth dives off of a cliff and you hear like this like splash like music like you. He's like, it's cartoon scoring. And that's not what I wanted. Like, I didn't want any music in this part. Uh, you don't have to underscore everything that happens and tell the audience what's going on because they can see it. Like, that's that's how film works. And Wells was just completely unhappy with this movie, uh, with the way it turned out. And like I said, like, he, for years he was like, no one, he didn't know he had actually, this was actually a good movie. Like, people thought it was good until he talked to Truman Capote. Like, decades later, Capote was like, oh, I like your Lady from Shanghai. It's a great movie. And Wells was like, wait a minute, someone likes this movie? And then Peter Bogdanovich saw it decades later and was like, this is a, real, this is a really good movie. And I'm going to admit, like, this is, a bafflingly good movie. I don't know why it works, but it works. Like you watch it and you're like, "All right, that was a that was quite a thriller." And then someone's like, "What happened in that movie?" And you're like, "I don't know. I don't know what happened in The Lady from Shanghai." Uh, it was cool, but I don't know what it was. I really loved his use of the Chinese actors. There's a bunch of Chinese actors in very minor parts near the end. Their their dialogue is completely not subtitled. Uh, Rita Hayworth just talks with her Chinese like friends in Mandarin. Uh, I don't know how good her Mandarin is, but she's speaking in Mandarin, and they, they're, they're conversing in Chinese. No attempt to explain what the conversation... I mean, you can figure it out, but no attempt is made to, to like under like to do any subtitles or anything and there's like chinese switchboard operators uh he filmed on location in like these actual chinese places and was just like there's chinese people here and it makes you realize you don't see that very often in these old movies unless like it's a fu manchu type or it's like a a white actor pretending to be chinese you just don't see chinese people in these movies and this is san francisco so of course there's like chinese people all over the place and uh, even in the courtroom, there's like a uh, there's like two women who are talking to each other in Chinese, and it's a setup for just like a joke. Like, but it's it's not they're not making fun of the fact that they're Chinese, and I shouldn't have to point that out. But it's one of those things where you're like, mm, that's not something you see every day. Like actual like Chinese people just being Chinese because they're in an area with a lot of Chinese people. So good for you, Orson. Like that's the thing that I, just, I thought was pretty cool. I mean, obviously this is in San Francisco and there's a lot of San Francisco locations. Uh, there's some people online who have done some, like, let's visit these locations, especially these places, uh, in the, in the Chinese neighborhoods where, where a lot of the shooting took place. And some of these places still exist, or at least the buildings still exist. And you can, you can take a look. I mean, it's just, it's a really well shot movie. It's really well done. There's crazy camera angles at times. Like Wells was, just really playing around with what he had here. Again, this wasn't a movie that he was like passionate about, but he did a really good job. Uh, it bombed. It was a serious bomb. Like I've said, uh, Wells didn't know it was even considered good in places. He just sort of like wanted to forget about it. He went on to make movies in Europe after this, uh, came back to America, uh, made some more movies. We may be touching on them. I, I think he did Touch of Evil like after this. Oh, he did Macbeth right after this. So this movie bombed. And then he was like, well, then I'm going to shoot a, 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 a small production of Macbeth in a, in a, in a, and on a bunch of Western sets. And then he, he did it, and it was a bomb as well. And then he went, that's when he went to Europe. And then he came back, uh, made Touch of Evil, and uh, then he just kind of became Orson Welles after that. Just was like, well, I guess I'm just going to be Orson Welles and make my commercials and just sort of 
make movies that will not because remember the Morrison Wells like filmed like a hundred movies, but he only finished like twenty, and then he only like like wanted his name to be put on like five. Like <laughs> that's basically the rest of Orson Welles' career. He just kept making movies that he kept not having the money to finish. Uh, Wells was was a celebrity, but he wouldn't get paid for a lot of what he did. Like part of his agreement to get the money to make movies in the first place was like I'm gonna forego my 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 salary. So like I said, he may he met Peter Bogdanovich. Uh Peter Bogdanovich kind of became like his hanger on, his his buddy, his I'm gonna like interview Orson Welles and just write about his life for a while. Uh, so the the DVD and Blu-ray of Lady from Shanghai that you can pick up uh, has a Peter Bogdanovich uh, commentary track. It's not really a scene-for-scene scene commentary track. It's basically Bogdanovich. He actually says in the beginning, I'm just going to read to you a bunch of interviews I did with Orson Welles about Lady from Shanghai. And But it's fascinating in its own right. It is, it is, it's well worth listening to the interview. A lot of the information, a lot of the information floating around about Lady from Shanghai, like if you get on the IMDb and you see like a trivia section, that's almost all lifted from Bogdanovich's like, commentary track or there's also a a a short feature like a 20 minute long feature of Bogdanovich just talking about this movie and uh a lot of that's just lifted like any trivia trivia stuff you get about this movie is just basically Bogdanovich like just talking about this movie uh because he's the one who first like bent Orson Welles's ear about the making of it because no one really cared up until then uh so the lady from Shanghai 1947 1948 uh again uh not the movie that Orson Welles wanted to make, but still a fascinating movie in its own right. Check it out. I spoiled the ending, but I didn't spoil any of this movie. It's weird. It's fascinating. It's fun. Uh, this is a Twitter sode, by the way. Uh, it's still Toro time. I think I mentioned that. Uh, check it out. Uh, I will be back later on with more Twitter sodes uh, as we continue to wait out Ollie's uh, just pre-college nightmare of being a high school senior. And uh, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. I almost forgot. This is the Del Toro podcast. So uh, why did I even talk about this movie in the first place? Because it's a Twitter sode, and Guillermo del Toro recommended this movie highly on Twitter. He wrote in uh, April of 2016, film The Lady from Shanghai by Orson Welles, Delirious, Fever Dream Noir, barb-like images embed into your brain without the alibi of plot. And I think that's a great summation. Uh, this is a movie that is like a waking nightmare at times. I, 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 I didn't cover that, but the whole feel of this film is that you're experiencing this as a fever dream. It is bizarre how weird this movie is. And it is very del Toro-y in that regard. It almost feels like a fairy tale at times. Or like someone's telling you a story they don't quite remember. Uh, the whole scene in the funhouse at the end, uh, I mentioned that Orson Welles built that funhouse. He did. They wouldn't finish it for him. The the He snuck into the studio to paint and finish his huge funhouse set, which was a bulk of the ending. Uh, he always said that the, the mirror sequence at the end wasn't even a big deal. He didn't care about that. That wasn't interesting to him. What was interesting was this funhouse sequence that Michael went through. You only see like 30 seconds of it in the movie. It was supposed to be incredibly long. You can see images, still images online of that of 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 sequences from this that were sh- shot and then edited out and are just lost. That, that footage is just gone. Uh, there was a whole like interaction with a, sm- a smoking skeleton that was supposed to look like Rita Hayworth. Like that, just really fascinating and weird weirdness. And I would just love that. Remember, Orson Welles incorporated film into a lot of his theatrical productions as well. Around the World in 80 Days 
had filmed sequences. These are all considered lost Orson Welles films because they don't exist anymore. He would shoot film to use during set changes and stuff that bridged the gaps of his plays. The guy made movies, like even when he didn't have to make movies. Uh, so that, that the whole like fever dream aspect of it, the fact that you don't know what is real and what's not, what is what is this false narrative that this guy is selling you? Because it's narrated, you get the idea that he's telling you this story that may or may not be actually factually true because everyone involved is dead except for Michael at the end. It's just that's that's the the del toro point i think is that you're watching something that is the that is the product of a fevered mind uh and is about but it's still about the relationships between these people and is and is about how this this guy just sort of stumbled into uh a nightmare world just that he he has no control over and he's basically almost ignorant and innocent of any of the wrongdoing going on you don't really know much about michael by the end of this you don't really feel like you need to learn much about michael you just you're just you're sort of lost without a map and that's 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 why it's such a fascinating little film and that was that's my coda goodbye (laughs) 